This is a Federal News Network podcast. You probably know that phishing attacks, cyber attacks using faked email, are getting more sophisticated. You may not know exactly how sophisticated. For the anatomy of one high-end account, we turn to cybersecurity entrepreneur and vice president of strategy at Inky, Roger Kay. Mr. Kay, good to have you on. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. And you have discovered a phishing campaign conducted using the Labor Department's accoutrements and appearance. And what was it after and how did it work? And what should people know about this type of phishing attack? Well, we at Inky have a service that we put out there that protects our customers from phishing attacks. And we don't actually look at their emails. That's their private business. But they have the ability to report emails. And so we do see reports. And when we begin to see reports that correlate, we notice that there's a new campaign afoot. And so we wrote about it in this particular instance. So basically, what the fishers did was they stood up various sites and used them as a way to lure people into a credential harvesting scheme. So the payload was credential harvesting. They wanted your Microsoft credentials, your login name and password. And so to get you to do that, they pretended to be the Department of Labor. And as you know, in this environment where we've been under COVID and everyone's been isolated, it's a lot easier to go after individuals who aren't in a context. They're just sitting there looking at their computers and they get something that looks like it came from the Department of Labor and says, we have a big contract, maybe you'd like to bid on it. Now, we know that most of the people that receive an email like that aren't in a position to bid on federal contracts, and so a lot of them are wasted. But there are a few people who would say, well, wait a minute, we're in that business, and I'm the person who could look at that. So let me see what we've got here. I'm a small and mid-sized business, and so I'm hoping to get some piece of this large contract. I've heard that the feds are just doling out money, so I should be able to get a hold of some. And so One of the things that these guys did was that they set up a number of domains that kind of look like the Department of Labor. So they use domain names like dol-gov.com, dol-gov.us, and so on, none of which are the actual DOL site, which, of course, is the .gov site. So that's sort of one of the ways they did it. They then sent phishing emails from a site that could pass normal security checks because typically what they've done is they've taken over an account from a legitimate sender. So from the incoming side, if you do that sort of analysis, if your email servers do that analysis, then it looks like a perfectly fine email. It passes all of those checks. It comes from a legitimate sender. It's just not the right sender. So someone has impersonated this person and they send you an email which has a PDF in it. And the PDF itself looks pretty good. It has Department of Labor logos and verbiage. In fact, they often clone sites like Department of Labor perfectly. All of the elements are exactly the same. That's one of the nice things about the digital world. You can clone something completely. So there's really two implications here. One is that the harvesting of some other campaign gave them good credentials from which to launch the site in the first place. And second, the fact that federal artwork and federal logos are, even though they're trademarked, they're available in the public domain pretty easily. You can literally grab a site and clone it and just change one tiny little element, which happens to be the bad button, the button that says click here, a big red or blue button that says, you know, click here and you can do your bidding. 
But then when you try to do that, it takes you to one of these recently stood up sites, like sites where we've looked at the who is data and we realized they put them up a week before the campaign started. And they have names that look pretty good. So if you're not looking too closely, you don't realize, oh yeah, that's not really the Department of Labor. But when you get there, in this case, there was a big black bid button and behind it was a malicious link. And when you went to the site, again, it was this stood up site, you know, just recently for that, you were then asked to use your email credentials to log in. Now, so one of the odd things, and we've noticed this in quite a number of different campaigns, the Fishers have a kind of a look back at the old con artistry, you know, which used to happen in the analog world where they needed something called a blow off to leave the mark down gently so they could get out of town before the mark realized that they'd been hacked or stolen from or whatever it was. So even though in the digital world, they're not even there, so they don't have to get away, they seem to have put together the same type of ritual. So they ask you twice. They say, enter your credentials and you enter your credentials. And then it says, er, that was wrong. Try again. So when that happens, one of two things happens. One is either you confirm those credentials and they've got a sure copy, or you say, well, maybe it wasn't that account. Maybe it's a different account. And you give them two. But then on the third go, they drop you into the real Department of Labor site. So all of a sudden you find yourself there looking at actual DOL going like, I don't know, why am I here? And they sort of wandering around in a dazed moment. However long that takes gives the fishers this theoretically time to get out of town, even though they don't really need it. Sure. So the question is, does this have any danger to the Labor Department itself in some manner? Well, the Labor Department should be aware of it. And we often, when we see these campaigns, we try to get a hold of the impersonated entity to say, oh, by the way, do you know you've been impersonated? And maybe you want to look into this. But in fact, they have nothing to do with it. The sites are all impersonating them and they come from somewhere else. So it's nothing the DOL has done wrong. So for the recipients of this type of email, will the DMARC architecture help? Or are there any remedies that you can install to keep this from happening? Well, unfortunately, no. So the just vanilla email has some very simple things. On the outbound side, there's FPF, SPF, and DKIM. And DKIM basically is a cryptographic signature that says that this server is known publicly to be the right server. And SPF basically says that server has the right to send email from a certain range of IP addresses, and it was sent from a legal address. The DMARC side of it is on the incoming side. And so if you're a recipient, then, you know, your people should have stood up DMARC. And that examines the SPF and DKIM data as it comes in and says, yup, these are okay. Now, the problem with that is that it's very easy to pass those things. The bar is very low. So if, for example, if someone takes over an account or if they stand up a new account, a new email server under a new domain that has never been seen by anybody before, there's nothing wrong with it. So that server puts out good DKIM and good SPF information and your DMARC reader will say, those look fine. So the answer really is you need phishing detection. And so the key to phishing detection is that it detects impersonation. So it says, can we figure out what this email is trying to be? Who does it look like it's coming from? Does it look like it's coming from the Department of Labor? Well, it does to us because we see logos that look like DOL and we see language that says DOL and so on. And on the other side, we can look under the hood and say, where did it really come from? So if it came from a machine shop in Kazakhstan, 
then we know that it's not under the control of the Department of Labor. Therefore, it must be an impersonation. So if you mark something as an impersonation, you could be pretty sure that it's a fish. Got but, it. Oh, by the way, if you do detect a fish, you can be pretty sure that behind it is a campaign. So the DOL campaign was credential harvesting, which is only essentially a partway campaign. So it's a campaign on its way to another campaign. First, they want the credentials, and then they're going to do something else with them. Exactly. So, you know, they may be dropping malware that does various sort of spying in your organization. They may be looking to launch a ransomware attack, either for money or for other purposes. You know, in the in the current situation in Russia and Ukraine, there's a certain amount of the first half of a ransomware attack where they shut down something, but they don't offer the keys. You know, in ransomware, you say, well, you know, if you pay us, we'll give you the keys. In this other case, they're just saying, we're shutting you down. We're not giving you the keys. So that's another possibility. Right. So basically, they're gathering the ammunition, and they're going to fire it in the second campaign. And that was my other question. Is Inky noticing an increase in this type of activity from Russia at this point? I mean, they're always there. We actually looked at it this morning. I asked one of our data analysts about it. He said, nothing but fine Russian brides seem to be coming through at the moment. So we're not seeing an obvious increase in this sort of activity right now, which is, which is very interesting, by the way. But phishing detection, though, that is a capability people can put in and it runs in an automated fashion? Yes. If you look at the various classes of email providers, you know, start off with the big ones. So you've got Google and Microsoft who supply most of the sort of email infrastructure for almost everybody. And they will offer pretty basic stuff with their basic services, and they'll offer slightly better stuff with their better services. On top of that, there's another group of folks we call the secure email gateways that have more capabilities for detecting things. Almost all of that was built for the spam era, though, which tries to say, does this look like something that we identify as spam? And the difference between that and the more sophisticated and recent phishing attacks is that we're saying the better fish it is, the better it will look. So it'll really look like DOL, you know, to the point where a human couldn't tell the difference. And so if you're trying to detect anomalies, you're going to find the wrong thing because there will be no anomalies. And so basically, unless you can do the impersonation detection, you can't figure out whether it's a fish or not. Roger Kay is Vice President of Security Strategy at Inky. Thanks so much for that detailed explanation. You're welcome, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to more about the Labor Department fake at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. 
And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on 
what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second. Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.